So there's these giant lizards, right, that run all the record companies. Hello, and welcome to The Arteries. We're a weekly podcast where we talk to creative people about how and why they do what they do. I'm your host, Noel Duplat. This week on the show, I'm sitting with Connell McIntyre, who, as the songwriting force behind Heritage Center and We the Oceanographers, is just straight up responsible for some of the best written Irish songs of the last decade. We chatted about the difference between recording a great drum sound and recording great songs, honing his skills playing with his dad in his younger years, and the greatest compliment he's ever received. One of the things we've talked about a few times with with some people, like there's been a few folk on now at this stage, is the the notion of success or failure, especially within the Irish music. Like, who are the successful bands? Like, La Galaxy are kind of and Fight Like Apes, or they're dead now, aren't they? Mm-hmm. They broke yeah, up. Yeah, they, they broke up. Um, I don't know. I guess I'm asking it from a point of view of like I know I noticed lyrically myself. I've started writing a lot about failure. Um, <laughs> yeah. I I don't actually consider myself a failure. No. Musically, I have got, like, commercially, yeah, possibly, but I don't really think my heart was ever in the commercial end of it. Yeah. Like, say you take Le Galaxy that yeah. you named as an example. Le Galaxy, from when, like, I would have seen them years ago and been completely blown away by them. Yeah to what they do now is a completely different thing and I would think they've had to make that transition to have any chance of being a commercially viable band Yeah. and for the type of music that I do I wouldn't like to play the type of music that is the commercial wing of the type of music that I play. Okay, like what would be the commercial wing? Is there one anymore? But it used to be like Snow <laughs> yeah. Patrol and stuff like yeah. that. When like that Codaline was a thing. Yeah, Codaline. Actually, that's perfectly it. Yeah, yeah. So things like Codaline and, you know, and I don't, I do not mean this in a sense of slagging off Codaline yeah. at all. I just mean that that's just not a type of music that I would ever have any interest in either listening to or playing. And that's fine. I'm sure the millions of people that listen to their records wouldn't want to listen to what (laughs) I do. And that's grand too. But I'm very happy to have two albums out that I'm really pleased with. Yeah. And two albums in the pipeline that I'm... Both both We The Oceanographers? No. Go on. So I'm doing another We The Oceanographers record and then... Along with that, I am recording an album with Craig McCann of Wounds, yeah. of formerly of Wounds, yeah. but of, you know, and so we've a record written. We've actually recorded pretty much everything off it. I want to just do the album live, just the two of us, and it'll be a really nice contrast to have something that's written on the fly and has that, like, instinctive sort of slightly visceral feel to it and then that kind of contrasts with the way the oceanographers kind of drawn out writing process and yeah and hopefully it'll sound good i I suppose we need to see if it works tracking it live and kind of i'm kind of thinking the less mics the better because i've become really bored of the modern drum sound okay you know just that all of the drums are clear and precise sure thing and there's the high tom and there's the mid tom and yeah. there's the you know again there's actually a great podcast um what is it called you i'm sure you've listened to it before um song exploder is that what it is i haven't heard songs, it, no. i think it's song exploder oh sorry i do know it yeah the, yeah yeah 
and they interview different people and they just pick one track mm. and they talk about how they recorded it. And they did it with the Microphones, which is a band that's just one guy. But in the interview, he kind of so he talks about how he recorded everything himself and he didn't really know how to mic drums. So he just like put mics wherever and hit record and go in and play. Yeah. And his theory is, and I, it's the thing I, that I agree with the most that I've ever heard about recording is it'll always sound enough like drums. <laughs> and, you know, people go to these huge lengths to get these drum sounds. And like, if you just put like four mics lying on the ground, it's going to sound enough like drums. <laughs> you know, like, are you recording drums or are you recording a song? Yeah. I kind of think that the art of recording a song has maybe disappeared along with the rise in the recording of instruments. You yeah. know, when you think about like the sonics, like the drum sound the sonics have is really cool, but yeah. it's like one, probably one mic. Yeah. You know, like, it's just, uh, we need to record the drummer. You go, just stick a mic in there with him. You know, <laughs> that's kind of the magic. Yeah. But I, I could be wildly wrong in that. And it's not even that it's wrong, but... You know, there there are great advantages to both. Mm-hmm. And it just kind of, to me, feels like nobody is exploiting the unconventional ways of recording drums. Recording a drum kit with a mic in the kick and two mics on the snare and micing all the toms and then using overheads and then using room mics. And, you know, they've become, it's become a very standardized procedure. Yeah. You know, I just kind of think that the less standard your sound is... If you basically don't intend to sell any records, as I do, <laughs> the the less standard things sound, you know, the nicer sometimes. Like we, on the We Do Oceanographers record, there's a couple of short segments that use live drums. Mm-hmm. And it's always just like a mic in a room okay, with a drum kit. In fact, at the end of the record, it's recorded twice, both me and Joey playing the track separately. Right. So there's like two drum kits and a drum machine playing the track at the end that's cool. well i think that's what it comes down to as well when you're when you're doing stuff like that the immediacy of it is all well and good but then it's perfecting that immediacy like kind of uh you know throwing a mic up uh, a mic or two up and getting a really nice sound and then just fine tuning that until you have it uh or is that kind of the opposite mm. of what you're saying i think that's kind of the opposite yeah. of what i'm saying <laughs> yeah yeah i think things are kind of people get too wrapped up in the perfecting of them yeah. it's like you don't listen to the kinks and go oh that kick drum sounds great the way you do with the modern record you don't go sure, you okay. just go wow isn't that song amazing yeah and there's like i do i hesitate to use the term a wall because that's very much the phil specter thing but there's just that as if like the whole band just has this weight that it carries and you don't hear you don't hear the individual parts the way you do in a modern record. You just hear the sound of the band, like a little bit. It's a bit of a muddle, and yeah. a bit of a mush. And the basses are sometimes like honky and round <laughs> and they're not like pristine and they don't have loads of low end. Yeah. You know, and there's, there's something sort of cool about that. It's like what music used to sound like. Yeah. You know, and, and at, at the same time, you've got all the soul stuff that had like amazing sounding drum kits yeah. but that was again that's like that's just mics in a room like that's not loads of microphones yeah on it you know it is tremendous rooms and tremendous kits though yeah and tremendous players <laughs> and desks and, yeah and people who knew how to tune their equipment yeah yeah uh, 
it's so rare to find a drummer that knows how to tune his yeah. instruments. Yeah. Yeah. I I was I've always I'm always really impressed when when drummers can just yeah just tune their kit and it, it seems like it seems like a, it should be such a fundamental but it's it's almost like a a lost art. Yeah, I th- I think it's kind of you can go into it and start learning to play the drums so quickly without it ever really coming up until like mm. recording is is the kind of the first place where it'll get brought up as a necessity. Yeah, it's possibly also that you don't notice the tuning of the kit so much unless you hit the drums lightly. Right. So when you play the kit lightly, yeah. you notice how tuned the kit is. Yeah. And if you hit all the things as hard as you can, you don't really notice it. <laughs> loud drums are loud drums. Yeah, yeah. You kind of notice that when you record it. Yeah. You notice the tuning in it because it's the only time you really hear it properly. Yeah. Like, with that in mind, most of the, the drummers that I would know who are really on the ball with tuning their kit are, like, jazz drummers or country drummers. Yeah. Or, you know, they play the things where you're not going for power. Yeah. Because you sense. need the note in your toms to be nice. Yeah. You know, you can't go like, when you hit your tom. <laughs> and with, with the the other band that you're doing with, I can't remember, sorry, his name from Wounds. Um, Craig. With Craig. And that's that's more, that's a louder kind of rockier thing or? Yeah, yeah. It's kind of kind of a bit more garage rocky. Okay. So it's like electric guitar and vocals on my end. And then Craig plays drums. Cool. And you're going to play it as a two piece? Yeah, we've done a couple of shows. Oh, right. Yeah. What, do, so what are you called? We're called Triggering. Okay. So it's, yeah, it's... That's a good name. It's fun. Yeah. Like, it's 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 really fun to do. Yeah. And I think the songs are good. Yeah. Uh, like, unfortunately, we don't have a whole lot of time because Craig is moving to Toronto at the end of February. Okay. It's nearly December, so yeah. possibly by the time this comes out, Craig will be listening to this in Toronto. So for the Heritage Centre album, you got David Newfeld in producing. How did that? How did that come about? I was kind of like, oh, I record. There's only like a few people that I really, you know, like that I would really like at the moment that are working to produce records. And so what we did was we sat down and we wrote down the list of names. And it was, you know, it was like Ethan Johns, David Friedman, Stephen loves Interpol. So I'd say, Peter um, Gattis, yeah. yeah. So and we just we had like a list of like ten names on a sheet of paper, and we just emailed them all. You know, I can't think of his name. The guy that produced Is This It by The Strokes got back to us, which was hilarious. Like, we were just like, they started emailing us back. Elvis Costello. Elvis Costello, we emailed. And uh, and his PA got back to us and was like, oh, thanks very much for contacting us. But uh, Elvis is working on his own record at that time and won't be able to do it. But I'm, I, I'll pass on the songs so I'll make sure that he knows that you got in touch he'll be really flattered and I was like this is great so all these people just like they're just people like you know like David Friedman can't always be producing the flaming lips (laughs) like that's not like he can't oh that's not like his day job you know he has to do other things and these producers that produce massive bands the bands 
probably weren't always massive. They've all probably got their start off some bands that they produced that weren't expected to be big and they all understand what it's like to not have loads of money. Yeah. Like anybody who works in the music industry knows what it's like to not have any money. Yeah. You know, even if only from afar. Mm-hmm. And I mean that as in anybody who works in the music industry as opposed to in the popular culture industry. Right. which I like to see a definite line between. So things like X Factor have no musical content. Mm-hmm. I don't even think they really pretend to have any musical content. You know, when people go, oh, it's the worst thing that ever happened to music. And I was like, no, it's just not a thing that happened <laughs> to music. It's just not like it's nothing to do with music. And pretty much everything that you hear on the radio falls into that category. So harsh words from Connell <laughs> McIntyre. Yeah, so David got back to us, and of the people that we spoke to, David was kind of the one that was like, oh, no, I really want to do this record. He was like, and he just seemed so up for it. Yeah. And he was really interested and was really excited, and we spoke to him on the phone, and he seemed really cool, and we could afford how much he wanted. Yeah. And then we went to Book Studio, and because he was kind of like, we'll record it in two weeks. Around this time, you'll fly me over. He was happy to stay in like my bedroom, and then depending on who was recording the following day, yeah, like me, Kieran, and Stephen would would work around it. Yeah, be, you know, these are the things that you do. And so we were going to fly David over, have the studio booked, and then it just turned out that to book anywhere that was worth getting him over to record us in mm-hmm. just pushed us so far over budget that we couldn't afford it and so we rang him up to kind of go ah oh, david you know really sorry but we just can't afford it and he was like oh, so you can't afford the studio he's like i've got a studio would you be able to afford it if you all fly over here i was like yeah well like where would we stay he's like i've got a big house you all stay in my house so we just flew over and like david was on board for doing this album from day one it kind of seemed and then when we arrived over, he put in so much work and it was like, ah, right. So this is this is how you be good at a thing, is it? You just work loads and you put in loads and loads of hours and you constantly go, no, that's not good enough. And you just make it better. It was it was such an eye opening trip. But that was that was the magic thing was you just ask for all I know. Well, you could be sitting there going, oh, really, I'd love to have Conal McIntyre produce my next record. But I won't know that unless you ask me. And that is kind of just how it works. Like, I'm really annoyed, actually, that Craig is leaving in February because because I was like, oh, we're going in to record an album. It's only two days. We're only going to in for two days. I was going to I was going to try and contact Thurston Moore and get him over. Why the hell not? He lives in London. Yeah. He lives in London. It's two days work. Do you <laughs> want to do it? The worst thing that can happen is he doesn't get back and I'll go, oh, no, if I ever bump into Thurston Moore, I hope he doesn't <laughs> remember my name and realize that I'm that person that emailed him. You know, like there's nothing bad. There is no downside. Like, the worst thing about it is that it's a waste of 10 minutes typing out an email. Yeah. Nobody's going to receive an email if they even get to read it and kind of go, oh, this person really likes my stuff and wants to pay me to record their songs. What an asshole. Like, nobody's going to think that. Nobody's going to think, ah, this guy likes the work that I have done so much that they want me to go and work with them. I hate this person. You know, you're not like it's nothing other than complimentary. Yeah. Everything here is alright. 
It is a, it's a funny thing. I know we inherited Centre when we recorded All Right, Check It Out. Yeah. Fought is possibly too strong a word, but there were substantial disagreements over yeah. the track listing. Okay. And it often comes back to, you're trying to figure out like, oh, okay, so we're all arguing over this now, and does it matter? <laughs> and as much as you try to go, it's only the order of the songs, it's still the same songs on the record, it definitely matters. Yeah. No, maybe less so in a climate where people don't listen to albums end to end, but because of the fact that we had always intended it on it being released on vinyl, mm-hmm. well, that means that anybody that buys it on vinyl is going to, you hope after they get to the end of the first half, flip it and put on the second, and so they will hear the order that you've put it in. Yeah. It's, it's a, it can be, it can be a, a tough thing. Do you remember any specifically of the, any of the specific disagreements? Uh, in terms of what goes where, the one the one that sticks in my head is yeah. over the the last two tracks on the record, which are All in the Way and Stars. Stars in the City. Yeah, and I very much felt that Stars needed to go at the end of the record. Yeah, and the guys thought I can't remember. I can't remember even. I can't even remember who was on yeah. which side, but some of the guys felt that it should have been the other way around, so that. You've got the kind of traditional, nice, lush track yeah. at the end, because all in the ways, you know, it has that it's kind a of, big it's epic. kind of, yeah, it's quite grand mm-hmm. and it's got piano in it and it's got like the melodies go kind of like swoop, let's say, you know, it's got the, the vocal melody and it's got a, a horribly high note in the chorus <laughs> of it. <laughs> um, and uh, the I sort of felt that the only place that stars worked on the record was last. And I also sort of felt that when it's last, it kind of like leaves you wanting more. Yeah. Kind of felt it hard pushed to kind of get it in elsewhere. Like we'd known from very early on, don't you ever was just like, yeah, this is, this is definitely the opener because of the intro that we were, we had for it. Yeah. It was like, this works as an introduction. Yeah. Um, actually, I think I think we had like the track let's say like for the first half of the record was kind of like yeah that's that, and then the second half of the record we recorded two of the tracks over here. We recorded most of the album in Toronto. Yeah, and we recorded the two of the tracks from the second half here, and then sent the sessions over and David mixed them. Okay, and it was kind of like how do we get this without it seeming kind of Frankenstein-y and with kind of giving everything its own space to breathe. It's almost like there's, it does have, it has the traditional notion of here are the singly kind of poppy songs at the start yeah, and then load. the second half of the record is like here's sort of the slower, kind of more more dissonant or more and more like less instant I suppose yeah. is the way. Like I I have very much hesitate to say less good because I think I probably rather the second half of the record. Yeah. But 
the notion of front loading I always kind of think of as putting the good stuff at the start so because nobody gets to the end. VMAs or something last year where Kanye West did a song with Paul McCartney and Twitter was just like this Paul McCartney guy's about to blow up so nice of Kanye I heard about that yeah I I yeah. Oh, what are you supposed to do with people though but equally yeah I suppose in a reference point like yeah when I was young and getting into the Beatles that's the equivalent of someone nowadays getting into 80s stuff I've never thought of that Huh. Yeah. Or the equivalent of me getting really into like forties jazz. If somebody now the, gets we, yeah. 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 I made myself feel real old there. Yeah, that's strange. Yeah. I actually I had the lovely upbringing of my father's a musician also. Yeah. And my father plays in pubs and stuff and okay. he doesn't doesn't anymore. He did when he was younger. Traditional um, he, stuff as well. Huh? No, he plays a lot of like country music and folk music. Mm -hmm. And so I grew up playing from I was 14. I used to play with him yeah. at the weekends and that was my job. So I used to play probably two nights a lot of weekends, like Friday and Saturday night. I didn't re really go out. It kind of, it, it did become a little bit more frustrating as I moved like later into secondary school and all my friends were going out. But, like, at the same time, I've never been one for places with lots of people. So it didn't bother me all that much. But we would be out playing in the Broadway bar, which was in Green Ore. We used to play there regularly. Okay. And my father would have always gotten, if people wanted to come up and sing, they could come up and sing. So because of that, people would specifically come along to hear him so that they could get up to sing a song or two. And we used to do, like, old folks nights and stuff like that and even like like last year a group of us went to the retirement home in Blackrock at, at Blackrock in Dundalk as opposed to Blackrock in yep. Dublin and did you know just played some country music I'm a big fan of uh, of 20s music okay and so we'd play a lot of that stuff but uh, I grew up with say like I would have been 15 and you'd have like people in their 80s coming up to sing and I'd be like uh, do you know Johnny's got a new red automobile I'd be like, no, butcher, away you go. <laughs> and like, <laughs> and my father would like try to sort of like busk an accompaniment of, he'd get them to sing it, the verse and the chorus of it off the mic. Yeah. And like try to sort of busk around chords on it. But it was almost like the older the songs were, the more difficult. Because if you hit that kind of Tin Pan Alley era, yeah. where there's just chords everywhere. Jazzy, but yeah. yeah. But yeah, so I kind of had that introduction to music. So like from I was a kid, I heard all these songs from me and my dad were playing 50s and 60s stuff. Yeah. And then the people that were coming up to sing were singing 40s stuff. Yeah. So it was really cool. Like it was like a, looking back on it. I, I enjoyed it then, but looking back on it, like it's the kind of thing that you'd never think would happen like in in Ireland you know like you, you get you get an introduction to music in such a weird way yeah like I learned all these songs from and then the same old people will be there the next week so you'd learn the song and you'd know all the words and you'd you know 
Yeah. And it was before you could go away and just find stuff on the internet. You know, if there was anything that you really liked, you could go and try and find a shop that sold a compilation of something. But, but it was pretty much all unobtainable. And the people that were singing the songs didn't know who wrote or sang them and probably didn't have the song title right or any of the words. Yeah. You know, it was just... Like they'd just been singing in their head for the past 60 years. You know how things sort of like just alter bit by bit. Yeah. into It became like Chinese whispers with themselves over the case of 60 years. It seems perfectly acceptable for a guitar player to go like C C C C G G G G C C. Whereas, like, if you do that on piano, people go, "Who is this fool? What's he doing?" <laughs> like, um, <laughs> loudly at the front of shows. Yeah, yeah. I've actually just realised that I've moved gradually away from the piano through my band. <laughs> so, first of all, I just played piano. And then in Heritage Centre, I played half the songs on piano and half the songs on guitar. And then in Triggering and Videoshnographers, I guitar just play guitar. Yeah. But the point of, the reason that I did that, and I kind of wanted to do it with Heritage Centre as well, is that I don't like having piano sounds coming from a thing that isn't a piano. Okay. Like, I'm happy to have obviously synthetic sounds coming from a keyboard or a synthesizer, but I find when I watch a band, I find it quite jarring to hear acoustic samples of things coming from a computer. Mm -hmm. It's not a thing that I'm fond of. So the live set for We The Oceanographers is very much kind of constructed in that way where we've taken out um, any live drum samples. They're not in the track that we play with. We just play with the 808 drum machine beat and in like the odd place like a synth bass line and where we do use a synth bass line it's a synth bass line that's being controlled by like control voltage okay as opposed so it's not even a thing that is being played yeah it's a thing that the drum machine is playing yeah so i i think that lets me off the hook on that <laughs> it's all about justifying what you do to yourself <laughs> I go through phases of being really interested in people's work. So. Yeah, I, I'd be the same as well. Like with, with writers and stuff, I tend to like read a book that I like and then work my way through their catalogue. Mm. 
or artists as well. Like I tend to, I'm still kind of obsessed with albums. I often find with with bands and with albums that I can often find it difficult to move on into the band's next works. Okay. In that if I find a band that I love finding a band that are like soons are my my band that I love that are current at the moment. Okay. When they actually saw them when they brought out their second album at a show in Toronto mm-hmm. and came home, bought their first album, loved that like good year later bought their third album yeah about a year later they brought out a really odd record which was soons and jerusalem in my heart okay. who are like a jewish music like world music kind of band they okay. recorded an album together okay so it sounds like weird dance indie but with i don't know what the term for yeah jewish I... music is but hopefully no one will be overly offended i like listening to bands that are releasing material now because they've brought out another album since then and it gives me time to listen to like appreciate and then move on to their next record okay yeah as opposed to like i i'm a big fan of tom waits yeah and people are people are constantly like oh have you listened to blah 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 so, and it's just like no like i've only like listened to 10 of his albums but i've actually listened to all yeah. of them i know them inside i kind of like move on to a new one every year i find it difficult to move faster than that through a band's back catalog the only band that were different were the Beatles, but that's possibly because from growing up with those being the things my parents listened to, yeah. I kind of knew yeah. all of the sounds anyway. So I knew at least like four tracks off each album. Yeah. So I was kind of broken in that way. And, you know, it, it wasn't like the effort of listening to Mule Variations for the first time. Well, like you can't go here, listen to Mule Variations for the first time. And then go, oh, did you enjoy that? Here's Frank's Wild Years. <laughs> like that's horrible. Or maybe, maybe I just don't have a, a big enough attention span. I don't think I could ap- properly appreciate like three albums by the same artist new straight off the bat over the course of like a month or two. I suppose it depends on the quality of the album. Yeah. And that almost like the better the quality, the less chance there would be of me getting properly. It kind of feels a little bit like I'd miss things or kind of miss the it's like you have the big impact of the first one. And then it's almost like I feel like I would miss the importance or maybe when on cases where I have done that, I've sort of missed the importance of later albums. Yeah. You know, so. It's not even a case if I try not to do that. I just kind of, you know, you you kind of feel it in your in your gut when you're ready for the next record. People people that hear this often often feel scornful towards me for admitting this, but uh, when I got Daydream Nation for the first time, I'd put it on and I'd just stop it after Teenage Riot. It's just like, right, that's enough music for today. <laughs> that's that's just that's all like i i don't need any more i'm now full of music (laughs) and i understand that the rest of the like i obviously moved on i've I've listened to the whole thing and it is end-to-end brilliance but yeah just sometimes sometimes you just get that one thing and it's just like actually my brother gives that as his uh his almost like his definition of of if a song's really good it's just that, like, you put it on and then that's it. No more music. It almost seems, like, silly. You can't think about what yeah. you're after hearing if something else is on. 
Yeah, I do, I do think it's an interesting notion that the idea that that which appears everywhere, and I do mean everywhere, I've found it kind of more and more difficult to listen to music, kind of as, as I've gotten older. And it's not just because I'm getting old, which I am, but it's because music is just, it's, I was going to say it's permeated everything in culture, but it hasn't. It's been stolen. It's been hijacked for its power by shopping centres and advertisements. Like, I was listening to the radio on the way up here, and there was an ad for, I think it was like health insurance, and there was a song playing in the background, as there always is, mm-hmm. and the guy's singing the song, in, and it's some massive hit. It's one of those songs that's on loads of different ads. Like, how are you supposed to hear what the guy's telling you in the ad? And then I was like, all right, the point is that you don't need to hear it. You just need to hear the name of the company. And you go, oh, well, that song's kind of cool. That healthcare company, they must be kind of cool. Yeah, I'll buy my health insurance from them. And nothing seems to mean anything anymore. And music has just had all of its context removed and it just gets hijacked by corporations. If somebody comes along and offers you, say, like, 10 grand for the next four years to use your song on an ad for something that you may or may not agree with Mm -hmm. well it's not like half an annual good wage but you know it goes a long way to enabling you to do nothing but write and record music and tour and it kind of takes a huge amount of the pressure off so i think it's i think turning down an advertising thing is a a bigger deal now because of the fact that they've removed all of the avenues that you can generate money from for music. I spoke to the woman that was the music, what do they call it, music supervisor? The person that picks the sure, songs yeah, music for, for Skins. I don't know, Skins isn't still a thing, is it? I don't know, but it was, yeah, it yeah. was fairly big music-wise. A lot big, of bands yeah. broke through that. But yeah. I was talking to her and she was saying like that they pay like as close to nothing as they possibly can because it's like promotion for your band. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of like, in one way, you can kind of go, okay, yeah, well, I mean, you're getting played on a TV show Mm -hmm. and that's good promotion. But promotion to do what? Like, if nobody's buying records, it doesn't help you sell records because nobody's buying them. Yeah. Like, people listen to music on YouTube. That's a sentence that's true. Yeah. Like, people listen to music on YouTube. And people listen to music on YouTube more than they do on any of the music-focused things, like Spotify or whatever it's mad yeah Bellex One are a band that I loved neither am I when it came out I thought it was great. And I, I bought, I actually remember buying, what was it, Music in Mouth? Yeah. Um, the day it came out and sticking it on in my mother's car. But they were, yeah, they were, they were a band that I, I really liked. And then the, I don't know, I just, I just kind of, I, I don't know if there just was not enough of a, like, because the first two records are quite different. <laughs> and then they kind of settled on the sound of the second record. Yeah. Or something. And I think that's, that kind of put me off them a bit. Like the bands that I, I tend to like over time, like another of like the first bands that I really loved were Super Furry Animals. Yeah. I remember hearing them when I was like, 
I don't know, like 14. And just, it was just like, ah, so this, this is how it's done. I had Fuzzy Logic and they had already released Radiator. Mm-hmm. And then I heard Radiator and I was like, this is a completely different thing. And then they brought out Gorilla. And Gorilla was completely different. And then they brought out that Welsh language Mom. album. Yeah. <laughs> and then, again, then Super Furry Animals sort of settle on yeah, on that. And even though I've, I've listened to not all but most of the albums that follow it, mm-hmm. and they're all very good. They all have really good songs. And it's just not the same thing. Like yeah. It feels like they've stopped experimenting, and it's the experimenting that I liked in it. David did, however, give me... One of the biggest compliments I've ever received. He said that uh, my approach to writing was very like Gruff Reese's. Okay. Um, which I took as a huge compliment. And I think at the time he didn't realize that I was a, a very big fan and he didn't realize that I would take it. Yeah. As a compliment that I'm talking about here like seven years <laughs> later. <laughs> a throwaway comment that I've clung to as one of the few I've ever received. Uh, what What element of his writing do you think he was... I think he meant more just the approach to, yeah, you kind of go, oh, this is working, this isn't working. And then if somebody kind of goes, oh, I don't really like the middle eight, you just go, okay, well, hmm. And you kind of sing your way through it and go, it could go this way. I would always try to not be too precious of things. Like, it can be, you know, if, if somebody comes along and goes, oh, I don't, I really don't like this bit of your song, which nobody's ever going to say it. Like, people, sure. people don't really say that yeah but it, it can be awkward to kind of like it can be awkward to kind of let stuff go maybe actually maybe more so in the heat of trying to get a track recorded or trying to get something rehearsed you know like you're playing and you get you hit the top of the chorus and a member of the band goes uh oh i don't really think the chorus is working mm-hmm. and you go it is working the chorus <laughs> is the best bit of the song maybe nothing else is working maybe it's what you're playing it's your fault it's yeah. not my it's not my writing and if you react in that way, nothing gets done. Yeah. And it's a really difficult thing to let go of because when people criticize your work, they're not criticizing your work. They're criticizing you personally. Like if somebody says, I don't like this line of a song you've written, that's them saying, I think you're shit. And that's how it feels. <laughs> but equally, I think people who don't write primarily don't understand that. It's a difficult thing to, con- yeah. it's a difficult thing to explain. <laughs> you've you've heard a deep part of me, sir.
Thanks so much to Connell McIntyre for talking to me today. You can find links to all of his music on our website, thearteries.org. All of the music for today's show was provided by Heritage Center and We the Oceanographers. If you enjoyed the show, please hit subscribe on iTunes or whatever you use to listen to your podcasts. It's kind of the ultimate measure of how we're doing, and with these simple public displays of affection, you can directly impact and contribute to our ability to keep doing these. So, please do that. The show was produced and edited by David Canton and presented by me, Noel Duplat. Thank you for listening. This has been The Arteries. Stay.